Do you know what a mirror is for? Seriously, do you know what a mirror is for? You might be sitting there going, oh, of course I know what a mirror is for. Wait, I do know what a mirror is for, don't I? Honey, this guy's asking me what a mirror is for. It's for, uh, it's for looking at yourself, right? Yes, correct. It's a handy little tool you can use to look at yourself. Well done. You actually do know what a mirror is. Don't worry, that was an easy question. I have one in my bathroom so I can get ready to make sure that this beautiful beard is looking good each day. And just in case, if for some reason, the moment I leave the bathroom, my beard style changes, I have another one on the wall just on the other side of the bathroom door. It's where I can make sure that I am okay with the me that is going outside for the day. They're a great tool to get ready and give you an accurate view of yourself, which is helpful, but sometimes painful. I mean, I started noticing the other day that I was balding a little bit and um, well, uh, I'm not that skinny or that tall and I have this lazy eye thing kind of going on. Um, and you know, when I look at myself in the eye sometimes, sometimes I see the mistakes that I've made and the things that I'm ashamed of. It's kind of telling me a story back at me. And then I see myself looking at myself and that's not always nice. I don't know if you can relate to that, but if you do, then after a while, maybe you've just stopped using mirrors altogether or at least that way. Because you see, there's another way to use a mirror. And we all use this way as well, but we might not realize it. We know how effective mirrors are on ourselves, but sometimes we don't like what we see or don't really want to make the adjustments that we notice that we need to make. And so we flip the mirror the other way and we force other people to look at themselves instead. Because if someone else is looking in the mirror, then I don't have to look in the mirror and then it's easier not to deal with my own stuff. And I think somewhere along the line, we've realized that that's effective. But even more effective is sharing your own ideas about what others need to work on while you hold that mirror up to their face. You see, we've figured out a way to turn a tool into a weapon. We're really good at that, actually. It's kind of what we do as a species. And what's been the result? Hostility. A divide between nations and political parties, communities, friends, and even families. Think I'm being hyperbolic? Well, how many of you knew someone or were someone that was shunned this last year from a loved one or someone you trusted because of who you voted for or what you stood for? How many times did it feel like someone you didn't even know was holding a mirror up to your face and told you all the things you were doing wrong while they tried to get you to change? How many times did you return the favor? Sometimes it felt like the last 15 months, all we've been doing is screaming at each other and pointing out all the things we notice wrong about each other. And we've used the biggest mirror at our fingertips to do that, social media. I knew one student who joined Facebook over the pandemic and I welcomed them to Facebook by saying, hey, we all get along here, I roll emoji. I mean, how many times have you seen a post that starts with, I don't know who needs to hear this, but put your mirror down, that's not helpful. For you visual learners, let me help you out. There's an Instagram account called Dude With Sign that is quite funny because it's satirical of how we use mirrors on others. And this guy just writes funny rants on cardboard signs and stands out in public for all to see. Like this one, stop standing up when the plane lands. Your baby is not 18 months, your baby is one. Boneless wings are just chicken nuggets. Middle seat gets the armrest and stop saying no offense right before you say something offensive. Now, while those are funny and somewhat true, this is such a tempting method to teach others more serious things. And as Christians, we need to think this method through. Do we believe that Jesus ultimately teaches us the best way to live? Absolutely. 
Does Jesus teach us how to stand up for injustice and love our neighbors and value good traditions while we embrace change and forgive each other? Absolutely. Does he encourage us to be different from the people around us? Absolutely. Does he challenge us to be vocal about those things even when they aren't popular? Absolutely. And is it going to put us at odds with others? Absolutely. Does he give us the okay to be jerks about it? Absolutely not. Nope, he doesn't. Don't do that. And yet sometimes we contribute to the hostility by doing that. Even though you may be right, how you use truth is just as important as what you believe to be true. As Christians, we don't want to turn uh, truth into a weapon that we bludgeon people over the head with. So turn with me to John 17. Jesus talks about this and gives some insight on how we navigate the divide and the hostility that we have in our culture. This section of scripture records a prayer that Jesus has for his disciples and then a prayer that he has for believers everywhere. In the book of John, it's the final moments of discourse between him and his disciples the night before he was betrayed and arrested and killed. And it gives us a window into what Jesus really hopes for his friends and those that would believe in him. John 17, 14 through 19 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now a couple things. Jesus is not surprised when truth is met with hostility. I mean, no one really likes to be called out on things that we need to make a change on. But faith in Jesus is so much more than just believing. It's letting God's spirit change you, prune away the dead stuff, which isn't fun, and, and feed the good stuff. When people talk about who Jesus is and what he does for you, that message is not separated from also taking out, pointing out the dead areas of your life. This is not something Jesus is surprised by, that there's hostility towards that, but he believes in truth regardless. He doesn't say, oh, well, that's not supposed to happen, so uh, let's not do that. Because another thing I pick up in this little section is that truth is ultimately meant to protect us. From who? Well, the text says the evil one, the one who tells lies, not truth. Because what do lies do? They sow hostility. For example, I give you six reasons to be anti-water. Water can be extracted from rocket fuel. That's dangerous. It's the main ingredient in pesticides. It 100% of violent criminals have consumed water in the hours leading up to their crimes. It's the number one cause of drowning. Excess consumption will cause sweating and urination and possible death. And 100% of people exposed to water will die. I mean, one possible response to this is to cancel water altogether and be like, oh my goodness, water's the worst. I don't know who needs to hear this, but water is murdering babies. And while all these facts are true, they're arranged in a way that's deceitful and ultimately lies and creates hostility. Because now anti-water groups and pro-water groups are going at it. And, and the truth is you actually do need water. All those stats prove is that water is everywhere and we don't need to push some anti-water campaign. The ultimate truth of the situation, if we could unite around it, uh, anti-water and big water groups could get together and say, no, we actually do need water. See, God's truth is the shield to hostility growing in our own heart. And when enough people are shielded, the community isn't hostile. It's united. The third thing I pick up from this section is that the truth sets Christians apart for a purpose and not a status. 
And I get this from the word sanctify, which means set apart for a holy purpose. This tells me that knowing the truth does not put me on the winning team or the winning side. It doesn't give me a trophy that, uh, I, that I win and I display for all to submit to my awesomeness. No, the truth uh, gives me tools to navigate a broken world and a hostile culture. Jesus continues in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Unity is the goal. Here it is. It's what the truth is for. It's what Jesus prays for. Unity, not elimination. Because unity shows God's motivation for sending Jesus, his love for us. This is how to think about it. Pick your issue. Homosexuality, abortion, racism. Humans are really good at saying, hey, this is an issue that we need to fix. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not, and you're stupid. Yes, it is, and you're stupid. I mean, humans can find unity in truth in the name of Jesus. If we can do that, good Lord, it's a miracle. And then maybe they see that that unity is a gift from God because we aren't doing a great job of it on our own. And if God gave us truth to be united and not hate each other, he might just love us, right? Because hostility is not his game. Unity shows God's motivation, his love for us. And it even continues in verse 24. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. He says, I want people to be with me where I am. Jesus wants relationship most of all. Jesus's victory over sin and death and lies isn't the ultimate goal. It's not like Jesus rose from the dead and then mocked everyone he tried to kill like an Oompa Loompa does when the kid got sucked in the chocolate river. Like Oompa Loompa Loompa dee doo, you tried to kill me but that wouldn't do. No, it's always been about the relationship between humanity and God that can be restored. And the text wraps up with this. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. When truth leads to unity, unity can create love. You see, truth is designed for love, not to be a weapon. So turn the mirror back around and have it face you and stop using it as a weapon. See, if you're like me, you're like, wait, if, if truth is so unifying and loving, then why is there hostility still? Well, because the mirror might have been facing the wrong way. I can't believe I'm going to quote Michael Jackson here, but I already quoted Willy Wonka. If you want to make the world a better place, just look at yourself and make the change. Ooh. Let's all go back to verse 15, though, when it's talking about being set apart by God's truth, not to take them out of the world, but to protect them. If truth protects us from lies and keeps us grounded, then we have the tools to fight off the temptation to use truth as a weapon we don't use truth as a weapon, then we have a better shot at unity. And if we have a decent shot at unity, our message of love will be better received and people will have a better understanding of how much God loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. It's kind of like uh, if you give a mouse a cookie type, type situation. But the first step to navigating a hostile culture is to take an honest look in the mirror and to do a little self-check on any of the lies that you're believing. And let me point out some of the most common ones. 
Lie number one, I'm the good one. I'm not the problem, they're the problem. I know what's right, they're perverting the truth. I'm good, they're bad. The truth is, you're not the good one. Only God is good. Take a look at Luke 18. A rich and religious leader approaches Jesus by saying, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first, this guy is right, but he doesn't realize that he is. I mean, Jesus is good. He is perfect. But this religious leader um, likely doesn't see Jesus as God. He just sees him as a good teacher or a rabbi. And Jesus knows this, and so he says this to him. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Jesus goes on to explain that if a man follows all of God's commands, doesn't have any lustful thoughts, doesn't steal, doesn't lie, honors their father, honors their mother, doesn't murder anyone, all those Ten Commandment things, then that's his answer to how to inherit eternal life. And the religious rich man responds basically by saying, I've done all those things since I was a kid, which is a total lie, because who has never told a lie or had a lustful thought or backtalked their parents? We all do it. But Jesus humors him and responds, there's still one thing that you haven't done. Sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And then come follow me. And it says that the man walked away very sad from this conversation. Why? Because he was very rich and he didn't want to give all his stuff away? Yeah, but I think that the guy is really sad because Jesus basically told him, your best efforts to do something and to be great aren't good enough. Even to get into heaven, they will never be good enough. Sure, you're very religious. You follow all the rules very well. You probably even give a fair amount of money away, but you have completely missed the point. No matter how hard you try to do the things for God or for a reward, whether earthly or eternal, it will never be enough. No human being is ever good enough, not one. But Jesus offers the truth here to oppose this lie. And that's what we need to see. That, uh, and this is what sets Christianity apart from every other belief system in the world. Because on my very worst day, not the day where I was doing really good, but the day that I was purposely doing what I know wasn't right, that's the day that Jesus died for me. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Only God is good. And so when we turn the mirror around and stop telling people to look at how bad they are and look at the mirror um, and look at the mirror myself, I see that I'm not fully good. I'm immediately humbled and I'm sorry. And when I see that my own sense of righteousness is causing hostility, I shut it down. And I say, God, you alone are the only one that's good. And I have no right telling people how bad they are. Now, we're about as fragile as a raw noodle, so we'll be tempted to admit that we did something wrong, but then turn that mirror right back around and pull the what about you card. I can't tell you how much I hate the what aboutism mentality. It's the desire to bring other people down around you because then your hostility isn't as bad as if everyone's doing it. No, clean it up. You are responsible for you. If you have issues you need to work on, work on them. But that's not fair. I know it's not. But they have to work on their issues and you have to work on yours. And ultimately, each of us needs to let Jesus fix and forgive what's in our own hearts. How do you navigate a hostile culture? Stop using truth as a weapon to tell people how bad they are. Lie number two, happiness is the goal. I just want to be happy. When I'm happy, my struggles go away. And when my struggles are gone, then all's right with the world, right? 
But the truth is the pursuit of happiness is like running on a treadmill. You never reach your destination. You're just running and running and running. That's why I hate exercise, I think. It's really just hiding loneliness, feelings of loneliness and boredom and a lack of joy. Take a look at John 4. A woman goes to a well during the hottest part of the day in a super dry and arid climate just to avoid people while she gathers water. And Jesus meets her there and says this, I have a gift that I want to give you, living water. Anyone who drinks the water in the well will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh and bubbling spring welling up within them, giving them eternal life. Obviously, she wants that. She wants living water. I mean, if she has to come out here in the hottest part of the day every day to avoid people, I think it would be nice just avoid this whole thing altogether. She would like a different situation. But Jesus isn't exactly talking about water here. He's talking about her heart and her pursuit of happiness and the emptiness that that has created inside of her. He tells her he knows about her five husbands, that maybe she was filling a hole in her heart with relationships. And I think we can relate to that mindset. Like, if I only had this thing, then I would be happy. Or if I only had more income and less debt, then I would be happy. Or if I could only get a new job, then I could be happy. Or if I could only have less responsibility, then I could be happy. But the pursuit of happiness, like I said, is like a treadmill. You never get anywhere. I was so sad after the election because a common post I saw on Facebook and Instagram was a post that just shared the price of gas and the stocks of the Dow and NASDAQ. Because if after four years it wasn't equal or better, then people were going to vote for a new president. And I thought to myself, is this the bottom line? Having the right person in power so that I have more money to be happy? Is this what just, this is how I vote? That seems like such a tiring pursuit and one that misses out on other things that matter way more. You see, Jesus offers a truth here to push back against this lie. There's a famous quote by a guy named Augustine, and he, he phrases it this way. He says, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. you. See, God made us. That means we'll never be happy, we'll never be satisfied until we have a relationship with the one who made us. Like there's something missing if we don't have that. If we pursue happiness, we will continue to run on this treadmill, never reaching our goal. But if we pursue our creator, he'll give us a deeper happiness or joy now and one day, like it says in Revelation 21, that we will be with him forever in heaven. There'll no longer be any boredom or tears or emptiness or heartbreak or rejection or fear. We will be whole for the first time. So how do you navigate a hostile culture? Get off the treadmill and get to know Jesus. Lie number three, I decide what's best for me. How dare you try to tell me what I need to work on? What's good for you might be good for you, but I decide what works for me. And you can't possibly understand my context, and therefore you cannot critique me or tell me what's good for me. It's basically the you can't tell me what to do lie. But the truth is, while we truly believe we know what's best for us, we're really good at fooling ourselves. Check out Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? The most deceitful? In other words, the biggest liar? My own heart? I mean, how many times have I been deceived based on what I felt was good for me in that moment? How many times have you? So if my heart is deceiving me and your heart is deceiving you, then every time we meet, neither of us are really willing to listen to each other or learn from each other. It's like our hearts just do a little filibuster and refuse to let any other voice on the matter be heard. That makes me incredibly sad 
Because what if we are being robbed of something better? See, I believe God wants us to give us a fulfilling life. John 10.10 says, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. He created the world. He made us. He knows how it works best for our enjoyment and his glory. So when we do life his way, we get and get out of the way, we're living our best life. But that means that you have to concede to God as the one who decides what's truly best for you. And how do you know what he's trying to show you? Well, first scripture. We must listen to what it says, which means we probably need to read it. That'd probably be a good idea. But God also uses other people to help us see things from a new perspective. So to navigate a hostile culture, try not to make all of your decisions based on your feelings. Instead, bring your feelings to Jesus and ask him what you should do with them. And listen to other people's stories to get a fuller picture of what's going outside of your bubble. There are probably a few more lies that we tell ourselves. And so I just challenge us to keep that mirror face towards yourself and allow it to show you what you need to work on because change is where it starts. Remember, don't be afraid of truth. It's designed to protect us so that we can find unity, so that we can truly know how much God loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us. So I have three questions for you. Number one, do you use God's truths as a tool to correct yourself or as a weapon to hurt others? Number two, what lies are you telling yourself and how is that causing division with others? And number three, what truth does God want you to hear most right now?